the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. calls us to be that salt in the earth to flavor our world, to penetrate it, to flavor it, to preserve it, and to be that purifying element where we hold out the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it might be that purifying, like that antiseptic, that God's good news would bring healing to a very hurting and sinful world. And may we all be that salt in our world today. Did you know that the Lord calls you to be salt and light to this world? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you that salt not only adds flavor, but purifies. Salt preserves, and as a disciple of Jesus, you're also called to preserve. Pastor Gary explains that God desires for you to go out with the good news you've been given and share that with the world. Don't hide away the salvation you've been given. Put it on a lampstand. Be the salt that this hurting and sinful world needs to come to faith in Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 9, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So Jesus, knowing this or overhearing it, whichever says to them, what were you arguing about on the road? They keep quiet. Because like a couple little kids, you know, who had just now been snagged, you're not going to want to volunteer your own stupidity. And so they they keep quiet because they've been arguing about, of all things, who is the greatest? Doesn't it give you hope when you read these guys' lives, you know? And And here they are just filled with pride. Now, Jesus, it says in verse 35, sitting down... Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So he takes the posture of a rabbi. In those days, whenever a rabbi was about to teach, it was kind of the opposite of what we do. The rabbi would sit, the people would stand. That keeps you awake. There's no sleep in standing up. And so Jesus takes the posture of a rabbi and he sits. And he's going to give them a visual illustration to help point out their their real issue here, which is pride. The issue here is pride. I mean, you can't ask yourself and each other who's the greatest unless there's a problem of pride in the group. And this is an important topic for all of us to be reminded about because, as Augustine once said, pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. And if we don't get this then we won't really deal with a lot of other sins because a lot of our sins really are rooted in the problem of pride. 
And that's what's going on here with the disciples. They want to know who's the greatest. They have a pride problem, as we all do. Now, some of you might say, no, you know, there's a list of sins that I struggle with, but pride's not one of them. Well, there it is right there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, look, pride is something that we, that we can never... Pride is something we should always realize that we struggle with, and humility is something we should always strive for, but never take credit that we have. Because the moment that you take credit that you are now a humble person, the moment you, you've just said a proud thing. And, and so as, as we see this scene here, Jesus is going to confront them in a loving way, but in a very illustrative way, about the problem of pride. And so what does he do? In verse 36, he took a little child, and he had him stand among them. you got to picture this. Jesus is sitting and he has a little child standing. And so this child is going to be the one that kind of towers over them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So some important things about pride. Now, th- this could be a Bible study all to itself, and we could go on for weeks about this, because there's a lot that the Bible has to say about pride. But I'm just going to leave you with three things tonight. Number one... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's straight out of 1 Peter 5, 5. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if we operate in a spirit of pride or arrogance, God will oppose us. And uh, Jesus even said in Luke 18, 14, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, you know, there's often in the Bible what we would consider to be paradoxical terms that Jesus speaks in. You know, he talks about if you want if you want to be exalted, you have to be you have to humble yourself. Uh, he who is um, humble will be exalted. He who is exalting himself will be humbled by God. You know, he says other things like if you want to re- receive, you have to give. He says if you want to be great, you have to become least. If you want to be First, you have to be last. And, and so there's always these wonderful paradoxes that you find sprinkled throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, the things that Jesus says, that are counterintuitive to the way that we think. We think if you want to get more, you grab more. No, Jesus says if you want to receive, you have to have the mindset of being generous and giving. If you, if you want to, you know, be great, then greatness comes through leastness. These are very counterintuitive things, but they're biblical truths that we need to understand and grab a hold of. And Jesus says that as it relates to pride, if you're proud, you're going to be humbled. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you and he'll lift you up because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Number two, really what pride is, it's about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. Uh, when we are full of pride, it's all about ourselves. It's very, self-centered, it's very selfish, you know, arrogance, pride is a a very selfish-oriented sin. Uh, Humility, however, is about God's glory. And then the third thing is, and this is important to realize, that pride makes us most like Satan, humility makes us most like Jesus. When you look at the Bible and you understand the characteristic of Satan, you could say a lot of things. You could say evil, you could say wicked, you could say tempting, uh, but but the, the root of Satan's problem has always been pride. And in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 28, there is this description of uh, Satan, and uh, it says this, Ezekiel 28, verse 12, 
uh, that you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, and then it lists all these precious stones. You have to envision this angelic creature who was created very beautifully and adorned his very created uh, uh, being, his, his form was decorated with precious gems. And the Bible describes it like this. So Lucifer, Satan, his, his name before he falls, uh, was a very beautiful angelic being. However, Ezekiel 28.17 says, Your heart became proud on, acca- on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. God kicked him out of heaven. But it was pride that was the root of his rebellion because of his beauty, his heart was filled with pride, and he rebelled against God. You can also go home later and do an an exhaustive study of Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 also describes the fall of uh, Satan uh, from heaven when God cast him down to the earth. And Isaiah 14 uh, tells us that Satan had five desires I will statements that Isaiah records for us that are rooted in pride. It says this in Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. And basically, the five I will statements of Satan were, I want to rule over heaven. I want to rule over angels, I want to rule over the earth, I want to rule over people, and I want to be like God. That's basically the questions posed to us in Isaiah 14 from Satan rooted in pride. And that's what destroyed him. And so when you look at the characteristic of Satan in Scripture versus the characteristic of Jesus... In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, describing the purpose and ministry and passion of Jesus, Philippians 2, 8 to 11, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to the degree that we demonstrate pride in our lives, we're being most like Satan. To the degree that we are most humble in our lives, we are being like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And so this is a very important topic to grasp because, again, as Augustine said, in many ways, pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. So back here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, this is, this is the scene. There's an issue of pride going on here. Who's the greatest? Jesus uses this little child as like a humble visual illustration. You have to just be humble like this little child. And uh, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, you think they learn? Verse 38. So they're in this little group. Jesus is taking this moment to teach them. In verse 38, it says, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Does that sound a little proud? 
Yeah, it's like, you know, he's not in our club. He doesn't know our hand signals. He doesn't, you know, he's not one of us. He doesn't have our badges. He's not one of us. There's still this competition in the body of Christ today, unfortunately. You know, are you Methodist? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Because you're not one of us. What are we here at Cornerstone? We're called non-denominational, right? We're Methobapteterian is basically what we are. Uh, and, and, and yet there's this competition in the body of Christ instead of cooperation. And we see it right here. John's wanting to know, should we stop somebody? They're not one of us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And, continuing on, verse 42, and if anyone causes... One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, because the child's still standing there, so now he takes time to talk about his, his uh, complete love for children. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, by the way, some will read this verse and say it, it's kind of a metaphorical um, reference to young believers. You don't want to cause a young believer to stumble, to be led astray, because he talks about one of these little ones who believe in me. But I I take it a little more literally than that. I think he's talking specifically about his uh, great love and protective concern for children. And so he says here it it would be better uh, for somebody to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck than to lead a little child into sin, to do anything to harm a child. Now, when I first... uh, went to Israel. I took this picture uh, several years ago. This is actually in Capernaum, and it's a picture of a a millstone. The millstone is is the top stone, and then you have this pedestal, this base, and uh, just so you can get a perspective, the pedestal comes up about waist high on a man. This is a huge this is actually something that was uncovered in Capernaum uh, back from the days of the time of Jesus, and it's actually made from the uh, basalt stone, which is the volcanic stone that is indigenous to that area there in Capernaum, the, the, the darker stone. And, uh, and then, so that you get the picture how this whole thing works. I actually just found this picture on the internet to give you an idea of, of the kind of way that the millstone would be used, where that center stone would be tipped up on its side, and then usually like a donkey would be harnessed to it, and then would walk around in circles and and the grain or the olives or whatever might be uh, in, in the millstone there to be crushed uh, would, would be walked around in a circle by a donkey, by some beast of burden, until it was crushed or uh, until the uh, kernel was separated from the wheat from the chaff and that kind of a thing. So uh, this was probably more for olives than anything else, this particular millstone. But you get the picture here that the millstone... You know, don't think of it like a, a little handheld millstone, like a, the size of a dinner plate. This, this millstone is, is like a couple hundred pounds. I mean, it's huge. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, it would be better for somebody to have one of those things tied around their neck than to lead a little child into sin, he's saying something very, very serious here. Very, very serious. His love and his concern is protection for children. Now, he uses this time to continue to go on to challenge about sin. Verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Circle that word because he's going to use that word three times in this section. 
better for uh, you to end your life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Underline that, and I'll come back to that. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. There's the word again. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, before we break it down, let me just quickly say that uh, Jesus is not talking literally here. He's talking seriously. And how do we know this? Because, look, to cut off, let's say your, your right hand causes you to sin. To cut off your right hand does not mean you will no longer sin because you have a left hand. To cut off one of your arms doesn't mean you no longer sin because you still have a, the other arm. To cut off one of your foot doesn't mean that will stop you from sinning because you still have another foot. In other words, look, you can have, you know, a guy could have both arms cut off and both legs cut off and be lying there with no arms or legs, and his name would be Matt. <laughs> That's really bad. Just think about it. But anyway, and he's just lying there with no arms and no legs. But listen, he can still sin. A person can still sin. Why? Because you can still sin in your heart. You can still sin in your thoughts. So if Jesus was meaning this literally, if this was the remedy for sin, then all you'd have to do is cut off an arm and a leg and, you know, and, and just be completely maimed and have no appendages and, and then somehow, now what? You, you will then go to heaven for that? No, no, no. What he's saying here is something very serious. Don't go home and start gouging out your eyes and start cutting off your hands. Jesus is not speaking literally here. He is speaking seriously because sin is a serious thing. And there is a real hell if you don't repent of sin. And he uses that word three times in this section. It is the word Gehenna. It is an Aramaic word that is derived from the Hebrew words Barhino, um, Barhino, sorry, not Barham, Gehenom. Gehenom means the Valley of Hinnom. And it was during the time of King Solomon that that valley right there in Jerusalem, what, there's three main valleys that cut through the city of Jerusalem. And one of them is the Valley of Hinnom and is today called the Valley of the Children. Because when you go to Jerusalem, there is this plaque to remind everybody in Israel the tragic thing that happened in the Valley of Hinnom during the days of King Solomon. When King Solomon was led astray by his pagan wives, uh, he engaged in idolatry and led the, the nation of Israel into a time of idolatry, which involved in the worship of Molech, the sacrifice of little children. King Solomon, who was at a time the wisest man who ever lived on the earth, and he prayed for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom, uh, sunk to the, the, a place of such mental depravity that, that he actually was a part of leading the nation of Israel into the worship of children until their blood flowed in the valley of Hinnom. And that's why today it is called the Valley of the Children, to always remember the terrible tragedy that happened right there uh, in one of the valleys of Jerusalem, uh, where children were slaughtered. Now, in Jesus' day, which obviously followed the time of Solomon by about a thousand years, the Valley of Hinnom became the kind of the town dump because at the end of Hinnom was this place where all of the, the, the garbage and the refuse and the sewage would run down to this lower part of the city of Jerusalem and it would be there that, that it would be constantly burning. Just a big garbage, just the town dump would be constantly burning to burn all the garbage. 
and, and all the sewage and everything. So you have to imagine the stench, you have to imagine the sight and the smoke. And uh, Gehenna, this reference to hell, uh, Jesus uses this word because in those days they would have been able to see kind of the city dump where all this stuff flowed at the, at the end of the Valley of Hinnom, and they would have had this another visual reminder of this is kind of what hell's going to be like. Perpetual fire, uh, just this stench and this horrible, cruel, a terrible place. And uh, notice when Jesus says here uh, in verse 44, he says it's the place where the fire never goes out. See, the, the fire of the town dump would never cease to burn because it was constantly burning all the refuse of the town. In that statement, Jesus tells us something that counters a false doctrine that is sometimes taught in churches today, which is that hell is a place of annihilation. There's some places that will teach that when that when a person goes to hell, they are burned up, they are annihilated, and, and then that's the end. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches perpetual fire, constant torment forever and ever. A person is not annihilated. This is a horrible place. You don't want to go there. It's, it's a place of continual, perpetual torment. And Jesus even adds there at the end where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's a false doctrine when people talk about the doctrine of annihilation. That yes, it's terrible. People will say, you know, people will go to hell, but at least they'll be, you know, burned up. And then, no. No, it's perpetual fire. It doesn't quench. It doesn't die out. It doesn't annihilate. It's a terrible place. And thankfully, Jesus lays down his life so that no one has to go there. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that as many as received him to them that believed on his name would have eternal life. God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And, and yet, because he is a God of justice and holiness and righteousness, if there were no consequences, then he could not be considered a just and holy God. So there has to be the consequence to sin and rebellion against him. Otherwise, if he just kind of looked the other way and there were no consequences, then how could he be truly in character a just and holy God? It's a hard concept sometimes for people to think because they think, well, if God was really a loving God, there would be no hell. No, because the very definition of love means how can you know what love is unless you know what the counter is? How can you know what truth is unless you also understand what lies are? How can you know what good is unless you also understand what evil is? And so Jesus uh, in, in his infinite wisdom here, points to Gehenna, talks about hell, talks about how it's a place where the worm never dies, where the fire never goes out. And then he, then he will soon, in the next couple chapters, we'll read, he'll offer his life on a cross and shed his blood so that anyone who believes in him doesn't have to go there. And that's the beauty of the gospel and the truth of eternal life and God's grace. So he shares this reality here about hell and about sin about dealing with sin so you don't have to go to hell. And uh, then he ends this chapter here. Uh, we read the end of this chapter in verse 49 by, by him saying, Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And I referenced this past weekend to Matthew 5.13, where Jesus said that, that you were the salt of the earth. You and I, who are believers in Christ, are the salt of the earth. And we talked about how salt purifies and how it uh, preserves and how it penetrates. And uh, so I'm not going to go over that again, but, but he, it, he calls us to be that salt in the earth to flavor our world, to penetrate it, to flavor it, to preserve it, 
and to be that purifying element where we hold out the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that it might be that purifying, like that antiseptic, that God's good news would bring healing to a very hurting and sinful world. And may we all be that salt in our world today. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know